0: Well, as many of you may know, my mom has the unique privilege of having her birthday on Christmas Day, which meant for those of us in her family, every December, we had double the challenge in trying to find her just the right gift. And so when we were younger, my sister and I would face this challenge, and we would often ask her, Mom, what is it that you want? and she would respond with, I just want two kids that get along. (laughs) Now this was a surprising response to me for a couple of reasons. One was because there were some seasons in our childhood where my mom had just as much chance of getting the Hope Diamond as she did in getting that particular Christmas wish. But the other reason but it was a surprise to me is because I could not figure out how that was a gift for her until I became a mom myself. And then I realized what my mom realized, which is that when siblings fight and squabble, it can cause a great impact on the entire family. And what's true for our nuclear family is also true for the family of God. And the consequences of those fights and battles in the family of God can be far more severe, which is what James reminds us of in our passage today. And because we want to make sure that we do everything that we can to avoid those negative consequences, we need to look at our passage today and think, how can I make sure what James describes in this passage is not true of my relationship with my sisters in Christ? So if you're not already there, please turn with me to our passage today, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, where we read this, What you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. It is obvious from the outset of reading our verses that there is great discord in this church that James is writing to, and we know that the fighting that he's referring to must have been pretty severe. We know that because of the language that James chooses to use to address these Christians. First of all, He uses military terms to describe their squabbles. The word that he uses for quarrels is the word that was used to describe large military engagement, like full-on battles between thousands of soldiers fighting to the death. And then the words that he used to describe their fights were like one-on-one battles or battles between two groups. Think maybe a sword fight, where people are trying to stab and poke at one another. But he uses these military terms to signify this isn't just some type of like petty little difference of opinion. This is something that is significant. This is something that is severe. We also know that the fights must have been major because James uses plural words to describe what is going on. He says there are fights, plural. There are quarrels, plural, that are going on among you. This wasn't just a one-off event. This was something that was characteristic of these Christians. They were constantly fighting. They were constantly at each other's throats. This was something that was happening habitually in this church. We also know that it wasn't just one or two people. Because every time he says you in this passage, it's using the plural. It's like y'all, right? It says, what causes fights and what causes, what causes quarrels and what causes, causes fights among y'all? Is it not this, that y'all's passions are at war within y'all? He's saying this isn't just one or two people. This is happening on a large scale. This is happening repeatedly, and this is involving most of the people that he is writing to. Most of these Christians are getting involved in these little skirmishes with one another. Now, we don't know of any specific issue that James was addressing. He doesn't tell us if there was a specific cause for these fights, which is further indication that this contentious attitude may have just been characteristic of these Christians. They were just grumpy with each other. They were fighting and quarreling with each other, and that just is how they were known. They were known for being people that were constantly sniping and at each other's throats. And James has just warned them about the destruction that their words can cause, about how their tongue can be used to start a fire that that blazes and takes over. And he says, that shouldn't be characteristic of you, but instead, you should be living lives of true wisdom. And that true wisdom that he describes in chapter 3, verse 17 is that it's peaceable, that it's gentle, that it's open to reason, it's full of mercy and good fruits. And it's like James is saying, Look, I've just told you the kind of destruction that you can cause with your words. And I've just told you what your life should look like. And Christians, James is saying, these are not characteristic of you. Instead, you are known for fighting and disagreeing and being at odds with one another. However, what James reminds them and what James reminds us, it's it's not actually the observable external battles that were the problem. Those external fights Were caused by a battle within. And this battle is what was preventing these Christians from acting in the way that they were supposed to. It was this battle within that was keeping them from being peaceable and full of mercy and good fruit. And we see this same warning about the battle that happens within us elsewhere in Scripture. 1 Peter 2.11 le- 2, says that there are sinful passions within us that are waging war against our souls. In Romans 7, 23 through 23, Paul says that he sees within him another law that is waging war against the law of his mind and making him captive to the law of sin. There is a constant struggle within every believer, between what they want and what God has called them to do. And what the church that James was writing to needed to do was that they needed to win that battle, but instead they had given up the fight. And so what we need to do is what they should have done, which is point number one, win the battle against selfish desires. Win the battle against selfish desires. Now it's tempting to think, oh, these must have been some really really evil people. They must have had some really really egregious sin going on in their hearts. They must have like had really dark places. That that is why their selfish desires were spilling out into these fights. But if you look at our passage, the word that James uses to describe these passions to describe these selfish desires is the same word that Jesus used in Luke 8.14 to describe the pleasures of this life. See, Jesus said that there are different seeds that are, th- that are thrown out amongst different soil, and some of them are thrown amongst thorns, and those thorns are the riches cares of this world, and pleasures of this life. And it's those same pleasures that can become passions. So it's not necessarily that the church didn't have, didn't want good things. They could have had, their desires could have been for good things. It could have been like, hey, I- it would be good to have a nice house. It would be nice to not be under the constant threat of persecution. It would be good for me to have a more comfortable life. They might have wanted good things, things that we could look at and say, well, those were commendable. But the problem was they wanted those things more than they wanted Jesus. They wanted those things more than they wanted to exhibit Christ-likeness in their life. Their eyes their thoughts, their focus was on their self. And they desired those pleasures of this life more than they desired Jesus. It is imperative that as we think about those desires that we have, that we win the battle against making them our priority. Christ should be our priority. And we need to make sure he is the subject of our focus and our attention and what we are running hard after. Now, as we think through this, we may be thinking, okay, but does that mean I always have to have the same opinion as my sisters in Christ? Are you saying any type of difference of opinion, Natalie, with those who are part of the family of God Is wrong? Well, we know that's not the case. We know that there are going to be times where there are going to be differences of opinion. If you've been with us in our weekend study of Acts, we looked several weeks ago at one of those examples. We had Paul and we had Barnabas, and they had a difference of opinion regarding whether John Mark should come along with them on their missionary journey. Paul looked at the situation and said, well, John Mark left us before. I don't think it's wise to take him. And Barnabas looked at the situation and said, I think we should. Maybe he thought this is a good time to give someone a second chance, a chance at redemption. And they had a difference of opinion. And so they went their separate ways. But you know what we don't read when we read about that difference of opinion? We don't read that, oh, Paul, he started trying to get everyone else in the church to agree with him and bad-mouthing Barnabas. And Barnabas He just figured out every single sin. He went back through Paul's history and said, well, what do you know? You were standing there when they threw the stones at Stephen. It didn't become contentious. It didn't become quarrelsome. They said, we have this difference of opinion and we are gonna still show Christ's love to one another even as we may not agree. Now, there may also be times where we have to express a different perspective than our sister in Christ when we are trying to keep them from error. Ephesians 4.15 tells us that there are times where we need to speak the truth in love. And so we never want to ignore sin for the sake of getting along. We don't want to condone those things that God condemns just because we want to appear agreeable. Because Ephesians 4.16 tells us the reason we speak the truth in love. We do that so they can grow up in every way unto Christ, so that the whole body, it's for the good of the whole body when we speak the truth in love. Because it then builds itself up in love. But do you notice the motivation there? The motivation isn't what I want. The motivation is what does God want? And how can I show love? the sister in Christ by pointing them to Jesus. It's not advocating for my opinion or my perspective. It's looking to the Bible and saying, this is what God desires for you. And because I love you, even though it may cause a temporary disagreement, I want to show you what Christ desires for your life. I want to point you to Jesus because I love you and I care about your walk with Christ. But again, the motivation for that is never me, myself, and I. If we're speaking those words, those words of truth, and the motivation is what I want, we're not doing it for the love of the other person. We're doing it so that we get what we want. And James tells us what happens when our selfish desires are the focus of our attention. There will be times that, for the sake of Christ and his kingdom, we may disagree. But we need to make sure that spirit of contentiousness is never characteristic of our church. We never want to be known for how much we fight with each other, for how much we squabble, and how many skirmishes we are getting into. Instead, We want to make sure that our eyes are not on ourselves but are on our love for Jesus and our love for our sisters in Christ. And that is what is the focus of our attention. When there is a disagreement, when we do have a difference of perspective with our sisters in Christ, I think it's helpful for us to ask, why am I struggling with this sister? Why do I feel this tension, this discord with this sister in Christ? If it is about us, if it's about what we deserve, what's convenient for us, how our kids deserve to be treated, we need to defeat those selfish desires in our heart. It would be better for us to take the loss for the sake of Christ. Ladies, this will be a constant battle. But through God's strength, we can control these passions. We can control these selfish desires rather than letting them control us. And the best way I know to control those selfish desires is to get busy serving others. Because if our focus is on how can I minister to this sister... How can I help this sister grow in Christ? How can I encourage this person in my small group? How can I help this person with their kids or with their errands or with their meal needs? If we're busy thinking of how we can serve others, you know what we're not thinking of? We're not thinking of ourselves. And so as we try to win the battle against our selfish desires, we need to get our attention off ourselves We need to fix our eyes on Christ and say, How can I show your love to the sisters that you have placed in my life? When we are busy serving others, we are less likely to cultivate sinful attitudes towards them. It's hard to grumble against the person that you're bringing a meal to, it's hard to be jealous of the person that you're trying to encourage. And if we're, busy, if we're busy serving others, we're going to have more love for them. We're going to see them more like Christ sees them, as an image bearer of God. And it's going to put to death our selfish desires as we seek to honor Jesus and serve those people he has placed in our path. Now, James gives us a warning in the next verse because he describes what happens when we don't win the battle against our selfish desires. James 4.2 says this, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. James paints a pretty serious picture here of what happens when we let our desires get out of control. And what we need to do is point to, we need to guard against sin's escalation. See, what had happened here was it had started with selfish desires. It had started with allowing a little bit of me focus to take root in the heart of these Christians. And then it had mushroom. It had grown and developed and it was that growth and develop that caused them to fight and quarrel. And what James says here is pretty dramatic. He uses really drastic language. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. And we might be thinking, okay, stop. Were they really killing each other? And most theologians agree they probably weren't. Because if they were, you think that would be James 1 verse one, stop killing your brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's unlikely they were literally taking each other's lives, But they know, they knew what we knew, which is that in Matthew 5, 21 through 22, Jesus says, if you have hatred in your heart towards your brother in Christ, it is like you murdered them. That same sin that takes root in our heart when we have hatred towards our sister in Christ, it's that same sin that left unguarded eventually leads to taking someone's life. If we let our selfish desires run rampant, it can have dire consequences. And we may be thinking, well, that's not gonna happen to me, right? I'm not gonna go on a killing spree today after a small group if someone in my group says something I don't like. And ladies, I hope that is true. But that little bit of anger that you allow just to reside in your heart, you just keep keep there because you really don't like how that sister treated you, that can lead to gossip. That can lead to slander. And eventually, if not put to death, that will lead to hateful out-actions. That little bit of discontentment, you're like, I know that I should be content in whatever circumstance God calls me. But I look around me and I see families that just seem to have it all together. I see people with really nice houses or really comfortable cars. And I just want to keep that little bit of discontentment to myself. I want to hold on to it because I think I deserve it. That little bit of sin will grow and develop, and it will lead to griping, it will lead to complaining, and it may even lead to tearing down of other sisters in Christ who have what we desire. If we seek our satisfaction in something other than God, if he is not what our number one desire is, those selfish and sinful desires that we allow to take root in our lives will flourish and grow, and eventually they will pour out in our life into sinful actions. Ladies, sin is insidious. It is tricky. It is cunning. It desires to deceive us. And so we must constantly ask God to reveal it to us because we want to make sure that we put a stop to the sin in our heart Before it grows and develops into hateful actions towards our sisters in Christ. The psalmist in Psalm 139, 24 said it this way as he asked God to reveal sin, he says, God, see if there be any grievous way in me, if there's any place in my heart where I'm not on the mark, where what I desire isn't what you desire where there is misalignment between what I want and what you want, Heavenly Father. There is any grievous way in me. Reveal that to me. See if it's there. Make it known to me. And lead me in the way everlasting. A seed of sin in our hearts, a little bit of discontentment, a little bit of anger and frustration, a little bit of greed, it will grow. It will develop and it will eventually pour out into our lives. And you may be thinking, okay, but how do I do this? How do I make sure that seed of sin in my heart doesn't grow and develop? Well, the first way is to be in the word constantly and constantly ask God to use his word as a mirror to reflect what your life should be and to reveal any way in which your life, your heart, the attitudes, the priorities, the desires of your heart do not align with his. The second way that we guard against an escalation is when he does reveal it to us, we are quick to repent and turn from it. We don't say, I'm just going to keep it. Like, it's not really that bad. No one else knows about it. I'm just, I just, I really want to keep this little bit of discontentment, this little bit of grumbling to myself. No, when God says, Look, there is a, wh- your heart is not aligned with mine. You have a selfish desire happening in your heart. We turn, we repent, we confess, we repent, and we turn from it. And we make sure that we don't allow that sin flourish. And the third way that we can guard against sin escalation is to ask for accountability. If sin has been allowed to flourish in our hearts, our sisters are going to notice it in our actions. So we need to ask our sisters for accountability. If we know, okay, I'm prone to cultivate a little bit of grumbling in my heart, We need to ask a trusted sister in Christ if you hear me utter anything that even looks like a complaint, that could be conceived of a complaint, please call me on it. Because I want to make sure I guard against sin's escalation. If we have a little bit of discontentment as we look at social media posts and we see all the perfect, cultivated lives that are going on around us, we ask our sisters hey, I'm going to take a social media fast. Can you hold me accountable? Can you make sure you don't see me liking anything or sharing anything? Because I need to make sure I guard against sin's escalation. We ask for accountability because we want to take the sin in our life seriously because we don't want it to grow and flourish and to lead to hateful action. We don't want it to lead to discord, and disunity within the body of Christ. James reminds his readers and reminds us that not only can sin in our heart lead to damage in our relationship with others, but can also lead to damage in our relationship with God because sin in our hearts can affect our prayer life. Read with me James 4.3. Where he writes this, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, imagine you're in this church and you're hearing this letter read, and you first read verse two, which says, You have because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. And you're like, Check, I've asked. I have asked. I have been praying. So I'm good. And then you get to verse three, and it says, You ask and do not receive. And you're like, Oh, I have been asking, but I, God hasn't been giving me what I've been asking Him for. James tells them why that's the case it's because their selfish desires had caused them to pray with selfish motives. They were asked, some of them were asking God for things, but they were asking for the wrong reasons. And we need to make sure, point three, that we avoid presumptuous prayers. We need to make sure that our selfish desires, that we put them to death before they cause us to pray selfishly. See, the number one priority of the prayers of the Christians that James was writing to was what they wanted. It was what they thought they deserved. It was what they desired to have happen in their life. The focus of their attention in their prayers was on themselves. And so they were praying, but they were praying with the motive of, God, give me what I want. Give me what I deserve. They were making demands of God. And we know that because it says the reason for their asking was because they wanted to spend it on their passions. They wanted what they wanted because they wanted it. And that verb, spend on their passions, is like the same verb that is often translated to squander. And I can't help but think of the prodigal son when I think of someone who squandered what his, heavenly, what his father had given him. See, if you know this parable of the prodigal son, the prodigal son goes and he asks his father for his inheritance. And then he went on a spending spree. He went chasing after all the pleasures of this life and he squandered what his father had given him. Ladies, if we're asking God for things because it's what we want, because we think it's for our good, because it's what we selfishly desire, we are not going to him in prayer with the right motivation. This is not the kind of prayer or request. That honor God. Psalm 34, verses 15 through 17, make this abundantly clear because it tells us the types of prayer, or really the types of attitude in prayer that God is pleased with. And if you would just take a moment, turn with me to this passage, Psalm 34, verses 15 through 17. I think it's helpful for us to get our eyes on this, to say, okay, what is it, what kind of attitude should I have when I come to the Lord in prayer? Psalm 34, 15 says this, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. Who is God inclined to hear? It's those people that he's looking at their lives and saying, they desire what I want. Their lives are aligned with my right command. They want to do what I desire them to do. And his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, whose selfish desires have caused them to act hatefully towards their brothers and sisters in Christ, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, when those who want what I, the Heavenly Father, wants more than what they want for themselves when their righteous cry for help. The Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. And if it still wasn't clear, look back up to verse 14 in Psalm 34. Because the psalmist says something that sounds remarkably like what we've been learning in James. Turn away from evil. Don't let that sin take root in your life. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The Lord desires people, his people, to come to him with their petitions. But those petitions need to honor him. Those petitions need to not be demands as if we know what's best. But it need, they need We need to come to him recognizing that our Heavenly Father knows what is best for us. After all, the church that James is writing to, as well as us, have been taught how to pray by our Lord and Savior. Matthew 6.10 says, Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, and he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. Not what I want, not my desires, Not the things that I think are good for me. But Heavenly Father, I come to you asking that your will be done. Now this doesn't mean that we can't make requests in our prayers. After all, earlier in Jesus' prayer, he said, Give us this day our daily bread. He makes requests. It doesn't mean that we can't bring our petitions to our Heavenly Father. He delights in hearing from us. But our petitions and our requests always need to have a heavenly motive. 1 John 5, 14 through 15 says it this way, that this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, And whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If we want to make sure that we're asking with the right motivation, we need to make sure that we aren't presuming that we know what is best for us. See, our requests, our petitions, our desires always need to be subordinate to what God desires for our life. Because we recognize that his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He is the sovereign king of the universe and he knows best. So we bring our petition, we bring our request, but we say, your will be done. Father, have it your way. Because more than I desire what I want, I desire for your will to be shown in my life. And when we bring those requests, our number one request should be that our lives increasingly look more like Jesus. After all, that is what we know he desires for us. Romans 8, 28 through 29 says that God works everything for good. For those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And then verse 29 tells us what that purpose is, that we can be conformed into the image of his son. If we want to avoid presumptuous prayers, we say, God, this is what I want. This is what I desire. But what I desire most is to look more like Jesus. What I desire most is that your will be done because you are what I care about most. You are the focus of my attention. You are what I desire most for my life. When my mom would ask for two kids that got along, she did it because she knew it was good for us individually, and she knew it was good for our family. In much the same way, God wants that for his kids because he knows it's good for them individually and it's good for the family of God. In order to do that, we need to win the battle against selfish desires in our heart, knowing that our relationship with our sisters in Christ as well as our very own prayer life can be damaged if we are not victorious in that battle. But when we are victorious, when we do conquer those sinful passions that wage war within us, our lives will increasingly look like Jesus, and our prayers will increasingly sound like his as well when he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard passage, it can be a hard passage. Because as we look at our hearts, we can see ways in which we have allowed sin to take root, where instead of killing our selfish desires, by, instead of defeating them, we have cultivated them, we have allowed them to resi- take residence in our hearts. Father, I ask that this passage would be a warning to all of us of the great damage that sin hidden in our hearts can cause. And it can affect our relationship with you and it can affect our relationship with our sisters in Christ. So Father, help us to commit to guarding against sin's escalation, to putting it to death quickly because more than we want what we want, We want to be like you. Help that to be our number one priority, our number one desire to be conformed into the image of your son. And Father, help us to ask our sisters to come alongside us in that endeavor. I ask as we go to our small group that our conversation would be encouraging, that it would be convicting, that we would link arms with one another as we all full theme run after you. Father, use your word to shine a light in our hearts and help us to turn quickly from our sin so that we may be even more useful for the sake of your kingdom. I thank you, Father, for the good gift that your word is and the good gift our sisters in Christ are to us. Help us to love you and to love them more each and every day. In your name we pray. Amen.